you know, when you, we have communion one Sunday out of the month, and uh, when we have communion, and then I gave you guys a little extra time to fellowship. I just feel like fellowship is such an important and vital part of the church's body life together, and I enjoy that. I enjoy, um, you know, just being able to communicate and encourage and just connect with people. So with that, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. My wife and I were in Seattle last weekend for a wedding, a family wedding. You know, we haven't had any family weddings in years, and now in the last month we had two of them. So we were gone for two Sundays. Sean filled in for me, and when I initially went to our website to see how much of 1 Thessalonians he covered, because two weeks ago we finished up our epistle in Colossians. We're going through the New Testament. And I'm kind of funny this, I'm not, I, I guess funny, I'm different from a lot of pastors in the sense that a lot of times pastors will tell people that fill in for them, don't teach where I'm going to be next because they want to kind of, I don't know, preserve their audio archives so that they can sell <laughs> Pastor Mike's series on First Thessalonians. You know, I, I don't care. I'm just glad we're going through God's Word. I just didn't realize Sean was going to go through so much of it. We're halfway through First Thessalonians, and I really enjoyed his message, by the way. Thank you, brother. I do appreciate it. I wish I could teach more, you know, I'm a plotter. I plod through the scriptures. I, I just, I see things, I park on them, and, and that's just the way I am. But uh, we're picking up where Sean left off. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go to the website, download the message, you can catch it or get caught up with uh, where we're at. Um, and Sean did a great job, too, of laying some background. The one thing I'll do before we get started is just pray, but I also just want to bring something up, which I'm really glad he left out. I'm really glad he left one thing out. No, he left me, he left me something to work with. No, he, it, was, it was really good. Uh, so, Lord, we just thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have in you. Thank you, Lord. Ah, it's just good to be in your presence, to know, Lord, that you're here, to know, Lord, that you're working in our lives, and to know, Lord, that you want to use each one of us to work in each other's lives. Lord, to encourage and to, to be in fellowship and at times to even admonish and correct. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for family. We thank you for the spiritual family that you have given us here in each other. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of that, that we would treasure that. Lord, that we would work together as a family, Lord, serving you, but Lord, also bringing others into the family as well. We love you, Lord, and it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Oh, and Lord, please bless the study of your word. Amen. I think I carried away, sidetracked. So uh, uh, where we're at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And the funny thing about chapter 3 is it begins with a wherefore, old King James. Wherefore? He says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 
I don't like it when a chapter begins with a wherefore because a wherefore or a therefore is a conclusion. It's concluding something that has happened before, the, something that has been stated previously. You know, when I was a young Christian, the pastors would usually say, whenever you see a wherefore, find out what it's there for, or the same thing with therefore. And, the, and again, too, it almost sounds like the emphasis is that we, uh, you know, thought it was good for us to be left at, at Athens. And really, you know, the backing up two verses into the previous chapter, and I've, again, too, made this point before, the chapter divisions aren't necessarily inspired by God. Translators put them there for references. It's easy. It'd be really difficult for me to say, okay, we're in First Thessalonians. We're at that part where Paul says, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, and then you've got your scrolls out and you're trying to find it. You know, so that's why. Just a little, little history lesson there. But in verse 19, as the chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is closing, Paul asks the question, what is our hope our jo our, or joy or crown of rejoicing? And he's talking about the Thessalonians. He says, are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Wherefore, because of this, because of the hope that we have, that you're our hope, you know, Thessalonians, you're our crown of rejoicing. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. You're our glory and our joy. Wherefore, when I could no longer forbear. Interesting Greek word. He only uses it four times. It's only used four times in the New Testament, that word forbear. And basically the NIV says we couldn't stand it any longer. I couldn't wait. I mean, it's just kind of that anticipation sometimes that people have. I mean, you just, you've done everything that you can to kind of wait patiently. And what Paul is talking about, waiting patiently to find out how the church at Thessalonica is doing. As Sean mentioned last week, it was a, a town that Paul only spent three Sabbaths at, preaching the gospel, and the church was established under tumultuous circumstances. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of opposition. And as a result, in Acts chapter 17, there's a, uh, an at-length description of what goes on there. But as a result of it, the Apostle Paul leaves Thessalonica because there were Jews that wanted to kill him. In Acts chapter 17, verse 10, it says that the brethren send Paul and Silas away by night. Paul goes to Berea. And even in Berea, the, the, the Thessalonican Jews who were in opposition to the gospel, they come to Berea to try to stir up things against the apostle Paul there. And as a result then, Paul is forced to leave Berea and he goes to Athens. And because Paul is kind of the target, some of Paul's traveling companions, other those that were serving and evangelizing with Paul, He's going to wait there in Athens for them to catch up to him. And as he makes reference here in our chapter that he thought it good to be left at Athens alone, he is there with Timothy, but he wants to know what happens to the believers in Thessalonica. He has had to flee because of the affliction and the trials, the opposition to the gospel. 
but he wants to know about this fledgling church to see how they're doing. And he could have waited until his traveling companions, the rest of those that were serving with him, caught up with him in Athens, but that's what he's talking about. We could no longer forbear. I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't stand still and wait to find out what the news was. I had to send Timothy to you to find out. Now, at the end of chapter 2, verse 19, and again, too, this is what, I, I, maybe I didn't hear, maybe Sean did bring this up, so I could be wrong. But one of the things that the Apostle Paul talks about, not only at the end of chapter 2 when he says, about the hope and the joy and the crown of rejoicing. And he talks about the believers at Thessalonica. He says, he says, aren't you those things in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? When Jesus returns. And the interesting thing about this epistle to the Thessalonians is a short five-chapter epistle. The chapters are short, too, so I understand how Sean was able to get through 30 verses, because that's first chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the thing I find interesting, and it's, the point's been made by other pastors and teachers before, is that every chapter in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians has some type of a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. The whole thing, the, the focus, the, the underlying theme and thread that runs through the entire epistle is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. You know, when you have that kind of in the forefront of your mind and of your heart, it affects your actions. It affects your attitude. It affects the things that you will do to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It has this type of, of an effect. And there are times even in our own you know, recent history the world's recent history where we think, oh, you know what, we better get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. You know, when the Gulf War began back in the 90s, there were many those that were familiar with Bible prophecy, and we see even things falling into place to fulfill the things that Scripture says will take place in the last days and before Jesus returns not only things are lining up that way but the things that will take place during the seven-year tribulation the seven-year period of time and when the gulf war took place all of a sudden you know people are wondering at least even the non-believers began to wonder biblically or the bible speak of these things and then there was the y2k scare 16 years ago where everybody thought you know the world was going to come to a grinding halt because of timing circuits in every piece of electronics. And again, too, you know, we were thinking we were going to be thrust back into the dark ages as a result of that. People were stockpiling food and armament and all these different things. And Christians were thinking, oh, Jesus is coming back. And they're looking for biblical reasons as to why Jesus is coming back. I mean, even, too, even throughout church history, there were people that come out with books, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. And then I, it seems like about every 10 years or so, somebody comes up with some type of reference and they're pointing out how it lines up with some of the Jewish feasts and why Jesus is coming back in, and I'm trying to think of when the last time one of these booklets or books came out in emphasis and everybody thinks Jesus is coming back. It's good to be constantly prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. It's wrong to try to assign some type of a date. We're to live in that constant expectation of his return. 
The Bible says in, and John says this in 1 John chapter 3, that he that has this hope of his return purifies himself. The problem is, is that when people sometimes think or erroneously think that Jesus is coming, you know, Y2K or 1988 or whatever, and then when it doesn't happen, some people's faith becomes derailed. And Jesus clearly said that no man knows the day of the, or the hour. We know what the world will look like. We can look prophetically and say, okay, I believe that we're living in the days and the age when Jesus will return. But the bottom line is we have to rest or be at rest in thinking we could be wrong. Jesus might not even come back in my lifetime. I, I want to live my life that way. And Paul writing his epistle, he brings up this point in every single chapter. At the end of chapter 1, he brings it up when he says in verse 8, speaking and commending the Thessalonians about the word of the Lord sounding out from them. You know, once they received the gospel, they kind of became a launching place for the word of God to go out and evangelism and reaching the lost went out from them as well. And he says in chapter 1, verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show us of what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here's the reference to Jesus' coming and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come to wait for his son, and he delivers us from the wrath to come. At the end of chapter 2 as well, and I already read it in verse 19, you're our hope, you're our joy, you're our crown of rejoicing, even in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. At the end of chapter 3, same thing, verse 13, you know, to the end, and again, to, we'll get to this point so you understand what end he's talking about that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In chapter 4, when we get there, the last half of the chapter is dedicated to dealing with some false doctrine that had come into the church about the coming of Jesus Christ. Believers thought that if they had to be alive when Jesus returned, and some had already died in the faith, and they were thinking, oh, you know, the teaching was, well, then if you're not alive when Jesus comes back, you're not going to go up into heaven. You're not going to be raptured. And Paul makes it very clear that that's not true, that the dead in Christ would actually rise first and that the trumpet would sound and we would go up and we would meet the Lord in the air. Again, too, there's some people that read portions of the Bible and it's interesting that this huge topic of the return of Jesus Christ and of the rapture has now kind of fallen by the wayside or on the back burner of many churches because they're not teaching all of what God's Word says. Or maybe because, again, too, they've thought, well, people have been saying that for decades, and then they don't teach it, and people don't live in that expectation, and they're caught unaware of the return of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, the first half of the chapter, again, too, deals with it and, and addresses 
prophetically the times and the seasons that the return of Christ are going to take place. And the thing is, the whole first half of the chapter deals with this subject before the Apostle Paul goes into his kind of closing of the epistle. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail or birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You know, when whether it's society or maybe even believers have this sense that, well, we're safe, everything's fine. Peter in his epistle says that people think, or they will look back and they'll even kind of scoff at the fact that Jesus is coming back. There'll be scoffers in the last days saying, where's the promise of his coming? Everything has continued the same way it's always continued. I mean, human history just is going on and on. There's never been any time when God has intervened in human history. And Peter writes in his epistle, he points to the flood as an example of God's judgment of this world. We're getting to that place. It's bad. The world is bad. But I also hate to break it to you. I think it's going to get a lot worse. I really do. And so all of this kind of governs the things that the Apostle Paul addresses in his epistle to them. And as well, it's interesting to me because these things also should govern, again, to the way that, you know, the, the return of Christ, the way that, again, from chapter 1, how the word of God and the word of our faith goes out. The return of Jesus Christ. The, return, the fact that Jesus is coming back, chapter 2, it should affect what our hope is and what our crown of rejoicing, the things that we're boasting or hopefully looking to receive spiritual reward for. Are we actually doing, fulfilling what God has called us to do? Chapter 3, the fact that Jesus is coming back, it should affect our desire as Christians to see others, younger brothers and sisters in the faith, and equip them to be able to endure the trials and to be established in their faith at the coming of Jesus Christ, as is going to be addressed at the end of our chapter. Jesus is coming back, and it should affect the truth of the resurrection, of the hope, but also to the anticipation that we have at the coming of Jesus. Are you looking forward to his return, or are you so focused on the, the, the birth pangs and the trials and the mess that this world is in. And again, it's easy. It's easy to take our eyes off of Jesus. It's easy to focus on what's going on politically, geopolitically, to see and to focus on the problems as even, I think, our own society is tearing itself apart from the inside out. Yes, the world's a mess, but we do have a hope, and it's something that we can share with others. But the, that the fact that Jesus is coming should affect the truth of our resurrection, uh, uh, of our hope in the resurrection. Yesterday I went to a funeral, yesterday morning, and actually I'm going to one tomorrow as well. The parents of people that I went to high school with, their parents are passing away. They're at that age. And... The one I'm going to tomorrow, um, 
I was good friends with this guy from the time that we were in fifth grade all the way through high school. He lived about a block and a half from me. We, we, I probably haven't seen him in about 30 years, but I have some mutual high school friends that will probably be going as well. And even the one I went to yesterday, I go even though it's a church background that I don't agree with. It's a church background that I grew up in. And again, too, the church itself has some real problems theologically. But, you know, I go there because I want to be a comfort to those that are there. I'm, I go there because I want to, again, too, it, 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 the people that saw me were just like, they were just, they were just grateful that I was there and opportunities to share. And I actually had a couple of opportunities to share. But now throughout the years, the word has gotten out, you know, from the grade school and my high school friends. Sometimes if I see somebody I haven't seen in years, one of the very first things they'll say to me, I saw a guy the night before at the wake. And again, too, our families were really close growing up. But the first thing he said to me, because he knew as I looked at him, I'm, I'm trying to process the face because over 40 years, 35 years, a lot changes. And I know that's the same thing for me, too. I don't look like some people look at my high school picture, my Marine Corps picture, and then they look at me now and say, wow, you've really changed. I said, yeah, I got old. I put on weight. But as I looked at this guy, and he reaches out, and he recognized me, and he, he immediately told me his name because he knew that I was trying to you know, place his face with his name. And then the guy standing next to him, and we, we all played football together in high school. We also wrestled together in high school. And again, in high school when I was a junior, I had a mohawk with an arrow on it. I know. And the thing is, he couldn't remember my name, but the first thing he said to me when he pointed to me, he didn't even say anything. He just did this hand gesture like, you're mohawk guy, you know, mohawk. <laughs> And I told them, that, yeah, Mike Fernandez or Miguel, as they knew me in high school. But it's interesting, because the very first thing that these guys usually say, and they did, you're like a, a, a preacher or something like that, or a pastor. And I said, yeah. I usually hang my head, and I say, yeah, I am. I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of embarrassed, I guess. I don't know. And then I usually will say something like, you know, I mean, they, they, the way they say it, it's kind of like, you're a pastor kind of a thing. And I said, well, yeah, and imagine the crazy people that I pastor. I mean, if I'm the pastor, imagine what the congregation is like. They really let anybody do this, don't they? Only by the grace of God. But here's the thing. My desire is to be a comfort to those, and that's why I go. And again, the resurrection, Jesus is coming. For those that are believers in Jesus Christ, death is not Satan's victory. And death isn't that, for the believer, that uncertainty of, oh, I wonder what happened to them, or I wonder if they're going to heaven or hell. Nobody even talks about that anymore, as a matter of fact. It's kind of interesting. They, I, I'm sure people think that, but there are so many churches that basically say everybody's going to heaven. Everybody is not going to heaven. The Bible clearly teaches that. And the fact that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins demonstrates that everybody is not going to heaven. Though Jesus paid the price for our sins. You have to place your trust in what Jesus has done. But again, too, the fact that Jesus is coming back, chapter 4, it affects our view of the resurrection and the hope and the anticipation that we have in Jesus coming back. And again, too, chapter 5, the fact that Jesus is coming back 
affects the way that we look at the days that we're living in, the signs of the times before the coming of Jesus Christ. If you want, read ahead and see some of those things. If you want, go to Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus describes to the, to the disciples what's going to happen in the last days before he returns. Go to Daniel chapter 9 as it prophetically describes Jesus not only coming and dying, but then being cut off. But the things that Jesus will accomplish. I mean, the, the Bible has so much to say prophetically about what the last days will look like. And then go to the book of Revelation. And I, you know, I now read through the Bible every year myself. But there are times that I just can't wait till I get to the book of Revelation where I'll just read it. I'll just read through it. Or I'll listen to teaching as a reminder of what's going to take place during that seven-year tribulation. And the Bible has so much to say about these things. And Paul says we couldn't wait any longer. Now we're back in chapter 3. And he says we couldn't wait any longer. So I had to send Timothy to find out how you guys are doing. But he also says with regards to Timothy in verse 2, and this is Paul's desire, even though there were three weeks in preaching and, and establishing or planting the church at Thessalonica, Calvary Chapel, Thessalonica. Um, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. See, whenever Jesus gets a hold of a person's life, their life should be radically changed. Their priorities are changed. A love for God comes as a result because you realize what God has done for you. I think sometimes we as Christians were perceived as being just nuts or crazy because we love the Lord and we're reading the Bible and we go to church and we give to our church and we serve at our church and we hang out with people from our church. And sometimes we as Christians were kind of looked at as, well, wow, you know, you guys, I remember my own parents thinking I was involved in a cult. You know, how, do you, how do you read the Bible? How do you memorize? You know what? I want to know what God says. I want to know His Word. I want to know Him in His Word. I want to know the commandments and His expectations of me in His Word. I want to get through this life. And the Bible says that in this world you're going to have tribulations. There's going to be trials and tribulations whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. But one of the things that God's Word does is it helps you go through this life with the minimal amount of trials and tribulation. And the trials and tribulations that we go through as believers come as a result of two things. Either the enemy's attacking you or God is refining you. And I'm all for, I mean, you know, again, too, nobody likes chastening. The, the writer of Hebrews says that. Nobody likes being disciplined or chastened by God. But the bottom line is, and the writer of Hebrews says, that it yields the work or the fruit of righteousness in the life of the believer. I'm able to look back as a believer and see what God has done through that chastening. And he's taught me to trust in him. He has taught me to cling to him. He has whittled away things that, again, too, are displeasing to him. He has worked humility, or he works humility in our lives as a result of the chastening. He works maturity. And, and again, who, who wouldn't want that? Well, it comes through the trials and the afflictions. I mean, you can't, 
There was a saying I heard, and I, I know Pastor Chuck used to use it, and I think Chuck Swindoll used it in his, one of his books as well. But he says, when the winds blow, he's talking about a tree, he says, when the winds blow strong, the roots grow deep. It's through those things that, again, too, that strengthen and mature us as believers. And again, too, Jesus talks about the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he that hears these words of mine and does them is like the person that builds his house on a solid foundation, on a rock. But he says, he that hears God's word and doesn't do them is like the guy that builds his house on the sand. And he says, in both cases, the winds are going to blow. The storm is going to come. The waves are going to beat up against it. But he says, it's the person that has built his house on the solid foundation, on the rock of God's word and on Jesus Christ that endures those afflictions and trials. God uses these things. Sometimes we look at others, they go, oh, you know, so-and-so, this and that. And yet we don't recognize, you know, God's still sovereign. He's at work and he uses those things. You know, <laughs> but the other thing, the other reason why trials and afflictions come, and again, too, is just because the enemy's attacking you. And I think it's important to discern the difference between the two. Paul wants to know for the church at Thessalonica, how they're doing spiritually, he sends Timothy to help establish them, to disciple them, but also to con comfort them concerning their faith. And he says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we're appointed thereunto. Appointed? Really? I mean, how many of you would share the gospel and say, by the way, if you accept Jesus Christ, you can accept, you, you also, you can bank on the fact that afflictions are going to come. Too much of a feel-good gospel is being preached today. Come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus, you'll have money in the bank, you'll get the best job, you'll live in the nicest house, you'll, everything is just going to be rosy and fine, and if it isn't, there must be some lack in your faith. The Bible doesn't teach that. Matter of fact, I think, if anything, the Bible teaches that if you come to Jesus, you're going to have more trials and afflictions probably than the average person. But it's because God loves his children and he chastens and disciplines us through the circumstances. And the enemy, Satan, hates God's children and he will attack you, but God will protect you in all of those attacks as well. And Paul reminds them, you're appointed to these things. It's good to, to, to remember that. It's good that, to know that God has appointed us to these things. God allows these things. It's probably a better way to say it. God allows these things to take place. I think so many times we come to the false conclusion that God doesn't love me. I'm going through trials. God doesn't love me. No, you're probably going through trials because God does love you. You're going through trials because, again, too, you're a threat to the enemy. And Paul says, I'm sending Timothy. And for me, the other thing that comes to mind with regards to who Paul sends, and we're going to get to this when we get to the two epistles that Paul writes to Timothy. He sends a young man who, in a sense, is Paul's spiritual son, his son in the faith, Somebody that Paul refers to him as, there's not anybody else that's like me that has a love for God, is living a, a sacrificial way, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, it's Timothy. 
Paul sends the guy that he trusts the most with these spiritual babes in Christ. He doesn't send just anybody. And I also think, too, that he's got to send Timothy because he recognizes that that's what Timothy is gifted to do as well. There are some that have different spiritual gifts. We've seen this when we've studied the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12, but also to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. Some people in the body of Christ have spiritual gifts, and it's a good thing. It's good that not everybody has the same spiritual gift. Because again, too, then the, the church would have problems, but because everybody has different things that they're good at in a spiritual sense, then the body is able to take care, edify itself, and meet whatever needs that may come up in the body of Christ. And Paul recognizes that this fledgling church in Thessalonica needs two things. They need to be established. They need to be discipled. They need to be told the importance, and again, too, you can turn to Acts 2.42, the importance of being in God's Word, the importance of being in prayer, the importance of sharing communion together, the importance of congregating and fellowship, being in fellowship with each other instead of isolating each other. And he knows that Timothy will do that, that he will help establish them as a church but the other thing that he knows that Timothy will do is that he'll comfort them. He'll remind them. And again, too, you're going through some trials. And again, I suppose it's just the way that you do it. You know, you hear somebody's going through some trials, you put your arm around them and you say, well, you're supposed to go through these things. I don't know that, again, too, there's one way of saying it. And another way of saying it is, is well, we as Christians are going to go through these things because God has appointed us to go through these things. You know, it's interesting because the word that's used there for comfort in verse 2 is the same word that's used in John chapter 14, or the same root word. The, the, the Greek word is parakaleo. And it means to come alongside, the kind of comfort that, that comes from, from just simply coming alongside somebody. It's a wonderful thing. Sometimes we don't even know what to say. But just our presence provides a comfort to people. I saw that yesterday at the funeral I went to. I see that, you know, you might think as a pastor or a Christian, I always have all the answers. I don't. You might think I always know what to say, and I don't. But I do know how to come alongside someone I do know how to point them back to Jesus Christ or to God's Word. And again, too, sometimes that's what's necessary. Job says the same thing with regards to his comforters. They, they begin to try to figure out why you're suffering. There must be sin in your life. And Job says, you know, it would have been much better if you guys just simply sat with me here in the ashes and kept your mouths shut. They don't know what God is doing in Job's life. They don't recognize that Job is actually an example of a guy that's righteous and unwavering in his faith regardless of the trials or the afflictions that come. In my own devotions I've recently have been reading in Psalm 119. And it just simply reminds me 
of God's purpose in the afflictions and the comfort that He is willing to provide in coming alongside in the person of the Holy Spirit, but in the person of brothers and sisters in Christ. In Psalm 119, verse 67, and he, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. And sometimes God afflicts us because we have a tendency to wander a little. We may not full out turn our back on God, but you know what? I, I can entertain some temptation, or I'm, I'm going to, you know, I feel like things are going just fine, and I, I don't have to be as close to God as I need to. And, and our shepherd extends that rod of correction and applies it to the seat of our understanding. And as a result, we're afflicted, but we come right back, don't we? I mean, hopefully we do. Verse 71, the psalmist says, and again, too, how many of us look back at afflictions and say, it's good, this was good. But the psalmist says in Psalm, in Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In verse 92, he said, and again, too, you know, he looks back and he recognized that it was good because as a result, he learned what God's word and his commandments are. In verse 92, and again, too, this speaks of the comfort that comes from God's word during the times of afflictions. And he says, unless your law had been my delights, I should have perished in mine afflictions. And again, to you know, there's probably four or five other references to affliction in Psalm 119. Read through it. It'll take you 10 minutes because it's the longest chapter of the Bible. But it really speaks to so many things and brings so much comfort and gives us understanding as to God's purpose in our afflictions. And he goes on to say in verse 4, For verily... When we were with you, we told you before that you should suffer tribulation, even as it has come to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, again, too, this is the second time he uses that expression. He mentions it in verse 1, I couldn't wait, I couldn't, I had to find out how you're doing, so I sent Timothy. And now in verse 5, he says, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter has tempted you, and our labor be in vain. And there should be a recognition then that Satan is at work. The enemy is going to come against you. As new believers, there's nothing more dangerous than what the tempter tries to do and either trying to pluck up the Word of God that's being planted or, again, to persecute that baby or that young believer so that he would turn his back on God. And he's concerned over that. He says, I, I couldn't wait to find out. I, I, I want to make sure that you were established in your faith. I'm worried about the tempter coming in and tempting you. And again, that should make us aware that there are temptations. See, before I came to Christ, I didn't care about the temptations. Oh, wow, look at that. Oh, I'll do that. Or even too, we didn't even feel like we had the power to resist temptation. But the, I think the two things that should happen when temptation comes, first of all, there should be a spiritual struggle that's going on. I shouldn't do this. Yes, my flesh wants to do it. No, 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 don't say that. Don't do that. Don't, whatever. But the other thing that, that takes place with temptation is God has now given us the power to resist. 
He's given us the equipment, the spiritual equipment and the tools to resist the temptation. We have the armor of God found in Ephesians chapter 6 that we can be wearing. We have prayer. We can call out to God for deliverance. We have the word of God to go to to remind us of his love and how God would be grieved or his heart would be broken if we give in to the temptation. We also have the word of God to tell us what the consequences are. Or maybe too we have our past experiences and remind us, you know what, last time you gave in to that temptation, you know how miserable and guilty and crummy you felt? Do you really want to feel that way again? Or do you know how this is going to affect those around you? Or affect your relationship with your wife or with your kids or with your friends? Or how the name of God will be shamed if word of you giving into this temptation get, comes out. So there should be a concern, not only for the young believer, but for us as, as well, and a recognition that the tempter is trying to tempt us. He's trying to derail our faith. I'm really torn here. I know there's only a couple verses left, but time-wise, we're there. So I'm going to stop right here. When we pick up next week, we'll look at how then he is going to use Timothy and Timothy's going to come back with the good tidings of their faith. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the fellowship that we have in you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. As a father loves his children, Lord, you love us. We may not always like the chastening, the discipline, the afflictions, the tribulations that come. But Lord, we thank you that you protect us, that you teach us through these things. And Lord, that you equip us to be able to withstand them. And Lord, that you're doing your work of maturing and, and bringing about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And Lord, we also just ask that we would ever be vigilant of the enemy's attacks and, Lord, that we would be ever mindful of the days that we're living in. Lord, I pray that that would shape everything that we think, everything that we do. Lord, we just love you, and we look forward to your return. We pray, Lord, you coming back could, could not happen any sooner for the mess that, that's taking place. I pray, God, that our eyes wouldn't see, continue to see, Lord, the mess that this world is in, but that we would be used of you, Lord, as agents of your hope. Bless your people, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I don't know if we have a closing song.